I'm Johnny B. Good, the host of the podcast Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin. This podcast dives deep into the story of Ray Trapani and his company Centratech. I'll explore how 320-somethings built a company out of lies, deceit, and greed. I've been saying since a very young age that I was going to be a millionaire. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge this season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Listen to the highly anticipated 100th episode of Tank and Jay Valentine's R&B Money Podcast with artist Chris Brown. Even working with you from Carrie Hilson, Adonis, mm-hmm. back in the day, I was 15, 14 doing that album. So like I said, I was in school like, yeah. okay, this is how you do it. This is how you make a song. There's a verse, a pre-chorus, and then a hook. I didn't know none of that. You learned I, that over a summer, bro. That's what I, it felt like. That's what it felt like. Listen to R&B Money on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Rivals is a production of iHeartRadio. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Rivals, the show about music beefs and feuds and long-simmering resentments between musicians. I'm Steve. And I'm Jordan. And today we're going to talk about the second best Britpop band after Blur, one of the great also-ran bands of the 90s. God. Right away, huh? Starting with this? I mean, look, Jordan, you know how I feel about Oasis. This was my favorite band in high school, and they are clearly, clearly one of the great rock bands of the 90s. Park Life. I'm going to reserve any smack talk for our Oasis versus Blur episode, which we've been putting off because it might very well rip this show apart. So (laughs) instead, we're going to go inside Oasis and talk about Liam Gallagher versus Noel Gallagher. And man, there is... A lot of material to go through here. I'm so excited. I mean, I almost feel bad that I'm this gleeful about just talking about a disintegrating family. But, you know, I, I'm so excited to finally go brother against brother, which I think is the fiercest rock feud there is, right? It, like in my ranking, it's interband ex lovers, interband ex lovers, and then interband family, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, uh, without question. I mean, it's I, biblical, it's Cain and Abel. <laughs> I mean, I I can't even get that sad about them because it just seems like this is their base state. Like, I know you were a new Oasis probably before most American fans were. You were like a fan back in like 94. Uh, Were you aware of the extent of their animosity? Yeah, I mean, it was impossible not to be aware of it. I mean, it was foregrounded in the band that Noel and Liam were always at each other's throats. And I think that for both of them, they realized early on that that was their dynamic and it was both their biggest curse and their biggest attribute. I mean, any of the energy that you get from Oasis and that combustible nature of this band that for me has made them irresistible, you know, they wouldn't be as interesting if they were just a band that had nice Brit pop tunes and 
had hits back in the 90s. It's the drama that that we're drawn to. And I think from a pretty early stage, you know, the Gallagher brothers were right up there with, you know, the Beach Boys and the Kinks and the Black Crows, all of the famous battling brothers. I think what we're going to see, though, that sets these brothers apart and what makes this rivalry so much fun to talk about is that they're both uniquely gifted at saying absolutely horrible and hilarious things about each other. You know, it's not like one guy's funny and the other one just takes it. They're both hilarious and great at insulting each other. Um, And at the same time, though, I think that they had a great partnership in much the same way. You know, we talked about Roger Waters and David Gilmore and Pink Floyd completing each other. I think that's also very much true of, of Noel and Liam. And when they're apart, you can really see that come to the fore. So, uh, yeah, I mean, look, I'm in heaven talking about this. This is going to be like a four-hour episode, so strap in. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it won't be four hours, but it, it, I mean, I wish it could be four hours, but we're going to get through a lot of stuff here. So without further ado, let's get into this mess. No Gallagher once said, I liked my mom until she gave birth to Liam. <laughs> we're going to open with that. That, How that, can you not love these guys? How can you not love these guys? It's like Don Rickles level, like in ah. put downs. It's the, the, the glorious. I mean, that, that just was savor every single one of these. I can't wait. Uh, I mean, by all accounts, right? Their feuding be- has been just like a permanent part of their relationship dating back to their childhood in 1970s Manchester. Uh, their mother, Peggy, described the rivalry in the incredible Oasis documentary, Supersonic. She said, I think there's a bit of jealousy with Liam and Noel. Noel was beautiful as a baby, and then Liam comes along. It takes the limelight off you. And that's not completely uncommon for, you know, older sibling who's, you know, has a, a much younger one. I think Liam's like five years younger, something like that. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's-, it's not that uncommon for that to happen, but usually you kind of grow out of it. But they just don't. And... You know, the, the, the real sort of spark of the animosity is sort of lost the time, but there's a great anecdote from Supersonic. Uh, Liam comes home drunk one night, and uh, he, he's trying to get into the bedroom that he shares with, with Noel, and he's feeling around for the light switch. He can't find it, and he really has to pee. And so he decides, you know what, I'm not going to deal with the light switch anymore, and he just unzips his pants and pees wherever he's standing, and it just happens to be right on Noel's new sound system. <laughs> right. Which, you know, if, if I was going to make like like a, a bio movie of these two, I think that's the opening scene right there. I mean, you've got Liam's mayhem and Noel's like p- literally pissing on Noel's music. Yeah, there's that documentary about Liam Gallagher, as you were, where he talks about this incident and he says, "Yeah, there used to be a toilet there." <laughs> <laughs> that's why. So it wasn't like he was intentionally pissing on his stereo, but it is fair to say that I think early on like when they were kids, that Noel was much more into music. Like he's described himself as being this introverted stoner who didn't really like being around people. Like he just wanted to hang out in his room, you know, get baked, listen to records and play guitar. And that was his world for a really long time. Whereas Liam was the tough guy at school. Like he'd always get into fights. It seems like he was kind of like a bit of a gangster at his school, like, you know, stealing stuff and like had the whole place wired. And then there's this story that he tells in Supersonic, that documentary, where he's, he says that he got hit in the head with a hammer one, one time, like in a fight. And after that, he started caring about music. Like, that was the thing that uh, turned him into, you know, a lifetime rock and roller. So If there are any, like, head any- trauma specialists out there, like, yeah. please get in touch. Like, I really want to know how that works. Yeah, I feel like we have to make a formal announcement here uh, that you should not hit 
Like if you're a parent and you want your kid to be a rock singer, don't hit them in the head with a hammer. You know, I, I, I do not feel like this is a documented way to turn, uh, you know, <laughs> troubled kids into, into rock singers. I think this is specific to Liam Gallagher. Um, but you take know, home value to this episode. Good. I mean, you, you said something interesting earlier though, where you're talking about how it's common in a family where, you know, you have a, you, you have some kids that are getting attention from the mom and then another kid comes along and they become the baby of the family and they get a lot of the attention. And, you know, normally you get over that um, as, as all the kids get older, but it seems like that in a way formed their dynamic early on that Noel was going to be the older maybe more reasonable one and Liam was going to be acting out and but he's like the cute one and and people love the fact that in a way that this kid can get away with murder you know because there's just something about him that makes you want to indulge him and um I mean Noel never got over that because in a way that became his life like that became the operating system of Oasis um and it really made that band work and we're going to you know talk about this in the episode but I feel like what Noel brought to Oasis, I think at some point he began to feel like that was the important part of the band. And without him, the band wouldn't have existed, which I think is true. But the very sort of self-destructive nature of Liam Gallagher is the spirit of Oasis. And like he, in a, I, I think in a very real way, was the person that Noel was writing about. Like when he wrote all those great rock songs, he wasn't writing about himself. He was writing about someone like Liam Gallagher and he needed someone to embody the spirit of the songs that he was writing. And uh, as much as he grew to hate Liam, I think he also needed him as a muse. So I don't know. Absolutely. It's a very fascinating thing. It's important to know too. I mean, the the band started off as Liam's band, which is, is not what you would expect. You think that the person who was the chief songwriter would have sort of everything would have coalesced around them. But Liam just wanted to be in a band and he didn't have any real music ability to speak of. I don't even think Noel even knew that he could sing. I think he was out on tour because he was a roadie for, uh, what was it in spiral carpets? Yeah. He was, yeah, he's on the road and, and he's talked about how that was his ambition. Like he had no real drive to be a rock star himself, that he liked being a roadie and he could just hang out with the band and he could be stoned all the time. And it was great, but yeah, he was eventually fired from that band. And like you said, Liam had this group, they were called the rain which is a terrible name, <laughs> but they were called the rain and it was all the guys in Oasis. Bonehead was in that band. Wigsy was in that Wizzy? band. Yeah, they were all in that band. And, um, you know, Liam recognized that he wasn't a songwriter. Uh, and I, and he's talked about how, like, he felt like it was his job to, to look fucking cool. Yeah. Like he said, it's my job to look fucking cool, but I need someone who can write songs. And it's really that simple. Like, this dynamic that like would exist and eventually tear Oasis apart. It is interesting too, to look at that and and realize that in a way, at least in the beginning that like Liam was like the general of Oasis and he's the one who brought Noel in. And of course, Noel ended up taking over um, as the band became really successful. But yeah, like he was the one in charge. And I think in a way he kind of defined the chaos that was around Oasis, which was really defined early on. Like, when they came to America, like, I don't know if you've heard this story, like, cause you know, Oasis, they start putting out singles in, uh, in England in like 94. I think the first single was supersonic that ended up being really big. And they just, and they just start putting out these series of classic singles in, in Britain. And then they come to America and they play this show. 
I think it's it's at the Whiskey A Go Go. Yeah, <laughs> like they're basically snorting crystal meth, like for days. Well, they think it's cocaine, they, and which is a real, <laughs> right. which is a rookie LA mistake, really. Like always check <laughs> right. what the powder is before you do multiple lines of it. So yeah, they've been up for days before because they couldn't sleep because they've done lines and lines and lines of crystal meth. And so has the crew, like just their entire touring party is just a mess. And they get up there for their big sort of coming out LA performance. And like, they're terrible. The roadies like put the wrong set list. So some of the band have like different set lists than the rest. They're playing different songs in each other. It, it's, it's awful. Yeah. And like, there's video of this in that documentary, Supersonic, and they start playing rock and roll star. And yeah, it sounds like parts of the band are playing a different song than what the song is supposed to be. And then they actually play it again. And yeah. it sounds even worse the second time. <laughs> and and it's funny because, yeah, like you said, like they thought they were doing cocaine, but then at some point they must have realized that it was crystal meth. I mean, I feel like by the second or third day, it's kind of, you know, because, you know, I don't think that, I mean, cocaine is a strong drug, but it's not as strong as crystal meth. No, yeah. I feel like, you, I feel like you'd probably figure that out like the first or second time. You snorted it. It's like, oh, wait, this is something different. But then like, by the time of the show, like you can see in the video, like Liam is going behind like the amps and snorting crystal meth off the amps on stage. Uh, I mean, the look so, of his eyes, like, he's on Jupiter. Like he's looking at he, like the, he, cause he always does the thing where he, like clasps his hand behind his back and like stares out and stares down the mic. But he's got this like really terrifying look in his oh, eyes. Yeah. He looks awful. He looks, yeah, it's a very like Breaking Bad type, yeah. like, you know, just, like Jesse Pinkman in the yeah. house, like with the orgy going on for like a week. Like he has a Jesse Pinkman type look <laughs> at that show. And like, you know, Noel Gallagher ended up basically like leaving town the next day. He was like, you know, screw this. I'm leaving this band. I think he went to San Francisco and hung out with like a woman that they met on tour for a while. And you know, they didn't know where he was, but eventually they reconnected and he wrote the song Talk Tonight about that whole period. And that's one of the great Oasis B-sides, of course, of all time. Um, and a, a, an example of like Noel writing a tender ballad and keeping it for himself and not giving it to, to Liam, which is going to be, I think, another issue in Oasis as the years go on, him sort of hoarding the more sensitive songs, you know, because he feels like there may be more of an expression of who he is. But, you know, again, like for me as a young Oasis fan, you know, I was reading about this stuff when I was getting into the band and it was a huge part of the appeal because I think at the time you got to remember that like Oasis came about, it was about five, six months after Kurt Cobain died. And there had been this period of a couple of years, like where you had all these grunge bands that were very anti rock stardom, very sensitive, progressive type bands, which was great. But I think at that time, like I wanted a band like Oasis. I wanted a band that was arrogant and kind of dumb and decadent and embodied like all these ideas about rock and roll that were really interesting to me at the time. Because, you know, like even like Guns N' Roses, like they were petering out at this point. You know, like there, there was like a real kind of gap for a band like this. So, you know, as great as the songs were, like that chaotic element of Oasis, I, I, you can't undersell that as far as like their appeal. I, I think, think then and now. And, and they were into playing that role. I mean, they were so obviously students of like 
rock and roll. I mean, they dress just like the Beatles. And I always think of that scene in Almost Famous when the band's fighting. They're like, no, 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 I'm the front man. You're the guitarist with Mystique. Like they knew the roles that they were set out to play. And and so they, they and they just both embraced them. I feel like it's it, one of the more self-aware bands. Like they knew, and you see it in interviews too. It's like, we are the best fucking band on the planet. And, right. and you want that from your rock star. Like you don't want the, the, the reclusive, like, no, 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 like no, no photos, please. Like you want... Liam out front, chest puffed out. It is interesting, though, that I feel like I think Noel played up the arrogant part, although I think he came to resent the decadent, chaotic part. I think especially in retrospect when he talks about that time, but also even in the moment, he was more of a music first type Mm. person. And I think he wanted to be taken seriously in that regard, where Liam has said repeatedly that for him... Oasis was never about the music or or just about the music. He said, if, it, if, if we had just had, you know, good tunes, we would have been a boring band. You know, it's like you need both. And, uh, you know, and I think that was another cause of tension for them as the years went on. And absolutely. And this is really becomes public on one of my favorite pieces of Oasis lore ever. A, a tape called <laughs> Wibbling Rivalry. Are you familiar with this? Oh. Uh, Am I familiar oh. with this? Who are you kidding? Uh, yeah. Yes. <laughs> so Of course. It's 1994. The Gallaghers are giving this now famous interview with John Harris of NME. And it consists of just the brothers entirely just sniping at one another. with Just obscenity-laden insults for, for something like, you know, half hour. 14 minutes of this was so funny that it actually leaked and uh, was printed and on a like a, a bootleg label, and it was released, and it actually made it to number fifty-two in the British charts, which is the highest an interview clip has ever charted. And which again, it deserved to be like that is how great their interviews were. Like how many, like so many musician interviews, and like you and I have done a lot of them. They're boring. They're really they don't boring. have anything to say. No, and it's like these guys, like from the beginning, were like masterful insult comics. You know, and their main topic was each other you know it's like it was beautiful it's incredible i mean if if you're a fan of the trog tapes or the buddy rich tapes it like this just blows that out of the water it it is so funny but it actually is really telling because it lays bare their different approaches to to fame in the band i mean liam kind of sets himself up as like you said like the king of mayhem like like the 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 heir to keith moon in a way and noel's sort of this voice of reason that liam always just kind of makes him sound really boring uh, and they start talking about a time when they were going on tour to Europe. They were taking a ferry from England to to Amsterdam. And uh, there are a bunch of uh, soccer hooligans on board. And uh, a fight breaks out. And Liam sort of gleefully joins in. I think that, uh, I think Noel described him as looking like he was running through a school playground chasing leaves. Like, throwing <laughs> right. out punches. Uh, Which... I Which think it's amazing. funny because they, they they talk about this incident in the documentary, but they don't mention Wibbling Rivalry. No. <laughs> you know, I think like they, they play clips they, from it, but they don't mention that. Yeah, like they talk about like how, yeah, like because they were going to Amsterdam uh, to open. I think they were opening up for somebody. Like the Verve. Yeah, exactly. And like they just got super loaded on the way there. And I don't think they even made the show because they ended up getting. They got deported. <laughs> yeah, they got deported before they even got there. <laughs> But yeah, yeah, they're talking about this very incident and they had like Noel is because they're arguing about basically about whether it was good that they got thrown off this ferry. Like Liam thinks it's great. And Noel, I think, is kind of embarrassed by it. Oh, yeah. He says the famous line. You think it's rock and roll to get thrown off a ferry and it's not. 
which I, I, I just love that. And, so, and he, he goes on and says, if you're proud about getting thrown off ferries, then get the fuck out of my band and be a football hooligan, okay? Like, we're musicians. We're not football hooligans. And Liam says, you're only gutted because you was in fucking bed reading your fucking books. <laughs> <laughs> I got to say, man, like, I have to disagree with Noel. As much as I revere him as a rocker and as a songwriter, it is rock and roll to get thrown off a ferry, though. I mean, come on. Rock and roll That's very deported. rock and roll. I don't know. It's the ferry element to me. Something about a ferry. If it were a boat, if it were a yacht, if it were a cruise. But something about it being a ferry just kind of like a little less rock and roll to me. Well, it's a ferry on the way to Amsterdam. True. Oh, though. yeah. That's fair. So That's I think when you true. when you factor in the Amsterdam aspect, then if you, it, it, it's like rock and roll 100%. Right. Okay. Ferry to Amsterdam filled with soccer hooligans. You were right. You're absolutely right. I, I, I walked that back. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, like Noel talked about this, like, you know, years later, I think he did an interview with Chuck Klosterman where he said, you know, what we've just been saying that like he said, you know, we've always had a different view of the band. I thought the most important part was the songs. And he thought the most important part was the chaos. I will, which I think is true, but I will say in defense of like Liam as a musician that, and I think this comes across in that documentary that like Liam, I think had a really intuitive grasp of Noel's songwriting voice and that he could like hear those songs once and like nail his vocal takes like pretty quickly. I think he would usually get them done like in a take or two. After, you know, again, just hearing like a song maybe like once or twice. And, you know, the thing about Noel as a songwriter, and I love Noel's songs, and especially on, you know, those early records, to me, they're like some of the best songs, some of the best rock songs about rock and roll that have ever <laughs> been written. But the thing about his his lyrics is that, like, they're mostly garbage. Like, and he has said this himself, that he's not a lyricist. He doesn't really care about you know, where his, what his words mean. They're, they're essentially just placeholders, but his talent as a songwriter is to hit upon like a key phrase and make that phrase so memorable that it negates the other lyrics and it, and the whole song just kind of becomes about that one phrase. So like, for instance, you know, like the song supersonic, you can have it all, but how much do you want it? That's a great line. <laughs> If you look at the rest of the lines in that song, they make no sense at all, you know, or you, you look at the song uh, Wonderwall, you know, the most famous Oasis song there is. And like, maybe you're going to be the one that saves me again, a great sort of over the top rock and roll sentiment. The other lines in that song make no sense whatsoever. I think for that kind of songwriting to work, you need a singer who can sell it and make the lyrics that don't make any sense fit like they're a part of the whole. And I think like Liam's ability to interpret Noel's songs is the magic of Oasis. You know, Noel had to write those songs, but like if Liam wasn't singing them, they would not have gone over nearly as well. And I think, you know, I was saying earlier about how Noel has this tendency to hoard his ballads. You know, we mentioned Talk Tonight, obviously don't Look Back in Anger is going to be a big Oasis song that Noel took for himself. I'll say that, like, I really like it when Liam sings Noel's ballads. I think there's a reason why, you know, as great as Don't Look Back in Anger is, there's a reason why Wonderwall is the, is the defining song of that era. And also, like, Champagne Supernova. I'd say, like, Slide Away is another example, like, from the first record. Ooh. The idea of this sort of, like, punk kid 
singing a more sensitive song and maybe showing a softer side of himself, it's such a powerful thing. And in a way, it, I think it's more of a true Oasis sentiment than like the more sensitive guy singing the more sensitive songs. Like having the, the, like the lout, the drunken lout, show you a moment of vulnerability. It's such a powerful thing and it draws you in. And I think that is the Oasis dynamic right there. And it's what made that band so great. I think it's what I love about some of Rod Stewart's songs too, to be honest with you. When he has like some of the more, like when he's doing like the Tim Harden song and, and you wear it well. Right. Yeah, it's a, it's a similar sentiment. Like he's on stage doing stuff with the faces and then the quiet acoustic stuff. Yeah, I never thought of it like that. And he, Yeah, like the swaggering guy who's like the fun time party guy, but then he's going to take a moment and maybe he's drunk, you know, maybe he's <laughs> wasted and that's why he's sensitive now. But like, he's going to tell you that like, maybe you're going to be the one that saves me. You know, it's like, whoa, like this guy is saying that? Like, it, I, I think there's, that's what made that song such an anthem. You know, it's, it was the combination of the song and also Liam's ability to project it out and to turn it into something other than what it would have been just on the page. You know, obviously Don't Look Back in Anger is an amazing song too. And I'm glad Noel sings it. He sings the hell out of that song. There's a part of me though that kind of wishes Liam would have sung that. I'd be curious to hear what that would have come off like. But it's interesting because during sessions for uh, for Wonderwall, he uh, he was basically he was living the the, the drunken lout part to to the hill. Uh, there's a famous story during sessions for what's the story? Morning Glory. Noel was supremely annoyed when Liam went down to the pub and brought like 20 strangers back to the studio (laughs) when he was trying, like painstakingly figuring out his guitar parts. Noel's just like, all right, get the hell out of the studio. Please leave. Uh, And then Noel goes to bed only to be woken up by an absolutely irate and supremely trashed Liam banging on his door. Uh, Noel wards him off with a cricket bat. (laughs) I think he hits him over the head with it, right? Oh, yeah. I'm sure. Of course. I mean, it's like, you know, if you have a cricket bat in the vicinity of Oasis in the <laughs> mid nineties, it's going to get smashed over someone's head, man. I, you know, it's like, it's like when you watch those old movies and there's a, there's a chase. A and like, yeah, exactly. Or like two guys are moving like a plate glass window across the street. <laughs> it's like, well, that's, that window's going to get smashed. You know, it's going to get smashed by like, you know, all, the car chase here. Uh yeah, and like, you know, there was definitely, you know, and this is around the time too, like, because you know, definitely maybe comes out, it becomes a phenomenon, especially in England. But it's also more of a, it's a, it's more of a hit in America than like a lot of British bands were doing um, at that time. And of course, What's the Story? Morning Glory comes out and that ends up really blowing up all over the world. And as Oasis gets bigger and bigger, you can see the chaos in the band get more and more exaggerated. Uh, there's that great MTV Unplugged special <laughs> that they did. I think that was 96 when Liam was so drunk and belligerent that he wouldn't go on stage um, and <laughs> sing. So like Noel had to be the lead singer. And I think he comes out and he says, you know, hey, it's the ugly four, yeah. you know, coming out, which is a funny thing. But again, it kind of speaks to what we were talking about earlier, that thing that goes back to childhood that like, oh, the, you know, my younger brother's the cute one. He gets all the attention. It's sort of like a passive aggressive reference to that in a way. And what's great about that special, of course, is that like Liam, it's not like he was back in the hotel room. Like he was in the studio heckling the band. So like they show him drinking, you know, pints and smoking heavily. And he's also heckling the band at the same time. And then, of course, he ends up bailing 
at the last second uh, out of an upcoming U.S. tour. I think because he said he had to look for a house. Yeah, which is one of the more novel uh, rock and roll excuses, I have to say. Like, yeah, like the, the whole the, the record company tried to smooth it over. Like, oh, yeah, Liam was called away for like to sort out a personal matter. And, and he's like, I, Liam, I don't know why he admitted the fact that he was. Like, oh, yeah, I can't go. I can't go to perform for silly fucking Yanks. I got to find a house to live in. So <laughs> which, you know, one of the things maybe you should have planned for. Uh, so the tour continues with no on vocals. Liam joins later. And it's kind of a mess. They they swing by the MTV VMAs, cause a huge uproar, I guess, by swearing and spitting, which, you know, honestly, MTV probably should have also prepared for. Uh, Noel cuts the tour short, I think, and just says, fuck it, I'm going to go back to England. And at this point, I think everyone thinks Oasis is, you know, moments away from breaking up. Yeah, but instead, they make Be Here Now, their third record. And, you know, this was a major event for me. I remember buying the record. I think I bought it the day it came out. It, it, I was living in my dorm at the time. School hadn't started yet, but I had to come back early because I worked for the school paper. So I remember just being in my dorm room by myself, listening to Be Here Now over and over again while watching coverage of Princess Diana's death. Because she died, I think, right after that. So like, that's my memory of 1997. That is and an like, English I, day. A very, very It was British a very day. English day. And like, I don't know, like, I don't know how you feel about Be Here Now. Like, I loved it when it came out. And then I kind of fell out of love with it. And now I love it again for the reasons that I didn't used to like it. But I, I, I guess I'm just curious, like, what you think of Be Here Now. I mean, it makes, like, Fleetwood Mac's tusk seem, like, spartan and sober and, like, stripped down. It's right. just so, I mean, I... I all Around the World might be the most coked out song in English rock history. I, I, I yeah, I, I need to it's think more so about that. It's so long. It's so, and like, and that was like an early Oasis song too. Like, I think in Supersonic, you, there's, there's footage of them playing that during a rehearsal, like maybe even before Definitely Maybe came out. It was like one of the early Noel Gallagher songs. And I think he had this idea that he wanted to turn it into like the new Hey Jude and just have, it go on endlessly and like pile on orchestras and choirs and, you know, small nations of children <laughs> gathering and holding hands, singing this song, which is like a pretty shitty song. It's like not a very good song. Like there's, there's a lot of Oasis songs that they could have blown up like that. Like do that to whatever or something like that. Like that song, whatever could have been given that kind of treatment. But yeah, I mean like, be Here Now, it, it, like you said, it has this rep for being very coked out, very excessive, you know, and over the top. But that's kind of why I love it now. Because, again, I can't imagine a, a rock band having the kind of latitude to make a record like that. It's like their Use Your Illusion albums. Right. <laughs> you know? And, and just the excess is incredible. Like, I mean, this song I think is legitimately great. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, the first song I think is legitimately great song. But like that song goes on for about seven and a half minutes. And I love this because like they put out a radio edit of that song and it's only like 20 seconds shorter. <laughs> so, so instead Deal of being like it. instead of being like 740, it's like 720. And I think all they did was take out some of the helicopter sounds from the beginning of the song. Like I think that, that okay, okay, take this out and now we're done. Um Is that the I mean, one that has like, like 30 guitar tracks on it? Yeah, there's this 
song, which is like one of the weaker songs on the record called My Big Mouth, where oh, yeah. Yeah, there's, like, there's like 30 different guitar tracks on it. And like you listen to it and it's like, there's really nothing interesting happening with the guitars. It just sounds like a, like a, you know, straightforward pub rock type, you know, snotty sex pistols type song. But, you know, like when I listen to be here now, I think of this story from supersonic where, uh, they were talking about how, when they were making definitely, maybe it took them a long time to get that record. Right. I think they had to re-record it like three times. And, the ultimate solution that they found when they finally hooked up with Owen Morris, who was the producer of those first three records was just to make it twice as loud. Like they found some device <laughs> that could make they, the they record took it to 11. Yeah, exactly. It's like they, yeah, they found a device that could make it sound way louder. And then all of a sudden they were like, yes, that's it. <laughs> and I just, I just think about that with be here now, because I just think of it as like a bunch of guys on Coke who are just like, make it louder louder you know like louder is the aesthetic of that record so i think to appreciate that album you have to just go with it you have to go with the excess and try to appreciate it for what it is or else it is a pretty obnoxious uh album but yeah i mean i think again that just speaks to like how the chaos was really taking over the band at that point and also just continuing to drive liam and noel further and further apart all right hang on we'll be right back with more rivals my name is johnny b good and i'm the host of the new podcast creating a con the story of bitcon over this nine-part series i'll explore the life and crimes of my best friend ray trapani i always wanted to be a criminal if someone's like oh what's your best way of making money i'm like oh we should start some sort of scheme you see ray has this unique ability to find loopholes and exploit them they collected $30 million. There were headlines about it. His company, Centratech, was one of the hottest crypto startups in 2017. It was going to change the world, until it didn't. I came into my office, opened my email, and the subject heading was FBI request. It was only a matter of time before the truth came out. You can only fake it till you make it for so long before they find out that your Harvard degree is not so crimson. How could you sit there and do something that you know will objectively cause more harm in the world? Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I never thought I'd take my three young kids to Sicily to solve a century-old mystery, but that's what I'm doing in my new podcast, The Sicilian Inheritance. Join us as we travel thousands of miles on the beautiful and crazy island of Sicily, as I trace my roots back through a mystery for the ages and untangle clues within my family's origin story, which has morphed like a game of telephone through the generations. Was our family matriarch killed in a land deal gone wrong? Or was it by the Sicilian mafia? A lover's quarrel? Or was she, as my father believed, a witch? Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hold up. 
Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robey, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. It gets really bad in 2000. So at this point, Oasis original drummer Tony McCarroll's out of the band and they got Alan White in and they're on tour. It's 2000. They're on tour in Spain and Alan White's injured his arm. And so the band can't play that night. And when you're Oasis and you can't play music, you go drinking. That's just what, what you do. So they're out drinking and, uh, and Liam finally goes too far with Noel. He, he makes a joke about Noel's daughter, Anais, I think is how you say it. Is that how you say his daughter's name? Sure. Let's say it. We'll say Anais. Noel, Noel, if you're listening, you can say something really rude about us on, right. on Twitter. That'd be great. So, so Liam uh, questions the paternity of Noel's daughter. I, I think uh. he might have he might have claimed paternity of Noel's daughter because he has gone on record saying describing her as quote his fucking kid. So oh, Jesus, yeah, whatever it was, it, it, it way overstepped the mark, and they got into a, a major fist fight. I think Noel split Liam's lip actually, and so. Noel left the band for, you know, the second time after the, the L.A. incident and the band completed the European tour without him. And I guess it took Liam years to apologize for this. Like it became the family stuff becomes a real sticking point. The stuff with Noel's daughter becomes a real sticking point with their relationship in the years to come. Yeah. And yeah. And I feel like, yeah, it, it's hard not to blame going him. At, yeah. Once you're going after someone's kids, it's like, OK, this isn't like talking about getting kicked off of fairies anymore. <laughs> you know. <laughs> Now we're now we're bringing in civilians into the into the fold, and yeah, that's never a good thing, right? Which surprisingly, for the rest of the two thousands, their relationship is as harmonious as it's ever gonna get. I guess because Noel had switched over to psychological torment. I guess he he starts to psychologically terrorize his younger brother. He gives a uh, an interview in Spin in two thousand five, and he says. Liam's completely freaked out by me now. He's actually frightened to death of me. I can read him. I can play him like a fucking slightly disused arcade game. <laughs> I can make him make decisions that he thinks are his, but they're really mine. So instead of like, a, yeah. That's better than any lyric he's ever written. A slightly <laughs> disused arcade game. Like, you know, you should just like do like a stenography of his like interviews and incorporate that into his lyrics. Like, I think that would help his songwriting a lot. <laughs> I mean, no, he was really getting like, but he would, I guess, move furniture around in Liam's room and try to convince him that spirits did it because Liam apparently is this like serious phobia of ghosts. Like it was that level of like petty. <laughs> right. Yeah. I've heard that story. I mean, like Liam at this time, I I feel like he was still just, he, he must've just been drunk like 24 seven. Because it, it's funny because comparing him at that time to now, you can really tell a difference and we'll we'll get into this later in the episode. Like his level of clarity now is so much greater, and it's like actually kind of put him on more of an equal playing field with Noel because it seems like back then, like he was such an easy target. And if you see interviews with him too, it's like he's impossible to understand in a way that, and it's not just his accent because he's like much more coherent now. But back then, yeah, he was just like a drunken, coked out maniac who was afraid of ghosts. 
If you, you look know, at like the, that was, yeah, if you look at like the '90s and early 2000s era Liam clips, it looks like a Sasha Baron Cohen character. Like you know, <laughs> right. it just it seems like like it, it, it can't be real. But but the fact that it is is, is all the better. But like you know, there was a sense in the in the aughts that Oasis had stabilized, that they weren't on the verge of falling apart all the time. They were putting out albums that are actually pretty respectable, like late career, like rock veteran albums. Like I actually think 2005's "Don't Believe the Truth" is like one of their better records. Like I think that was like a legitimate comeback record for them. Maybe not so much commercially, but certainly artistically. Yeah, and then like uh, dig out your own soul, like some of those records, like they were doing well. There was almost a feeling like, well, maybe they kind of got over what they, you know, all that turmoil in the '90s, and they can just be a band that goes on forever. And the main thing is, dig out your souls. That I guess Liam really strongly objected to the use of keyboards on the album. It became this huge sticking point. Noel later said, like Liam is an irrational fear of keyboards. So they were starting to get. You know, I think Noel described their prior albums after Be Here Now as like, you know, all right, just just we're, we're a rock band doing four on the floor, guitar, bass and drums. That's it. Nothing fancy. And then Noel decided for Dig Out Your Soul to we want to get fancy again. So and, and Liam was not happy with that. It's like although like when you listen to an album, it's like not some radical departure. Like they didn't make Kid A like <laughs> Dig Out Your Own Soul. It's like still like an Oasis record. But I think it just shows, like, an Oasis, like, their template is, like, fairly narrow sonically. And, you know, any deviation from that looks like a pretty radical departure. And, you know, like you said, I think it's fair to say that Liam probably had a lot to do with that. If you look at Noel's solo career, he does veer a little farther away from, like, the straight-ahead rock that you hear in Oasis. Didn't Liam hate Wonderwall at first? I, I I hadn't heard that story. No, is that true? I think Noel said in some interviews, like, yeah, this is the guy who hated Wonderwall at first because the drums went bomb to da bomb and that was, like, too much for him. Oh, uh, <laughs> see, I wonder if he was just saying that, though, to make... Make a point. Liam look stupid. Right, you yeah. Know, which, which isn't hard to do with Liam sometimes, but... Anyway, this sense that, like, that I had anyway, maybe I just had wishful thinking back then that Oasis had stabilized. I mean, that blew up, essentially, in August of 2009. Because they're playing this festival in Paris, and uh, you know Liam and Noel apparently had been having tensions on this tour for a while. Um, there was a fight that they had over Liam's fashion line, which again, this is going to be a running theme on this show: me railing against fashion lines. <laughs> I feel like when when there's ever an artist who starts caring about fashion more than music. It's always the end. The music is about to get and really bad. It's music's about to get bad, you know, because it's like I want to make boots now instead of <laughs> paisley you know, shirts. I want to make cool belts instead of cool songs. But anyway, like Liam had a fashion line and he wanted to advertise it in the Oasis tour program, and Noel wanted to charge Liam advertising fees for that, which <laughs> Liam did not like. So they're arguing about that, and it all comes to, to a head backstage at this festival in Paris. And like, how did this, I'm trying to remember everything. I know, I know that there was a plum involved. I know Liam threw a plum at Noel. I think he might've like, and then I think Noel smashed a guitar. I think it was Liam storms out on his way out. He throws a plum at Noel. Yes. And then Liam came back in, grabbed a guitar and started swinging it like an ax in at Noel's face. And it, Noel 
as he said later, he was pretty freaked out by this. It's a fairly violent act. So the guitar gets smashed. I think Liam's the one who does it. Noel seeks shelter in his car. He's in the parking lot of an Oasis gig in his car. And he's just like, you know what? I can't. I can't do this anymore. I cannot do this anymore. And, and that was I, the end. That was, yeah, exactly. It kind of ends with like a, a plum stained whimper, you know? <laughs> it's not a spectacular, you know, a smash into a side of a mountain. I mean, I, and Noel said that like, if he had maybe not talked about it publicly right away, if he just kind of stepped away and, and the band could have, maybe gone off and done their own thing for a couple years that they might not have broken up. It seems like in a way it was sort of like a, uh, an impulsive decision on his part to look at this incident as like the last straw. But then maybe once he decided that in his mind, he liked the idea that he could just be on his own because I think, I mean, obviously this goes deeper than just like arguments over a fashion line, you know, and we've talked about it already in this episode you know, these two have always been in each other's throats. It must have been exhausting to have that kind of dynamic that is not only destructive, but it was also constructive in a way. Like they needed that tension for Oasis to work. And there was a period where, you know, Liam's invitation to chaos and Noel's sort of controlling tendencies were those butted heads and it created a lot of friction and it made Oasis a very exciting band. But like, you know, you can't do that forever. And I think there was a feeling, I think especially on Noel's part, that like, I can do this on my own. Like, I can make records on my own. I'm a songwriter. Um, And I don't need to be an oasis. And, and I don't need to deal with Liam's shit, really. I right. Even simpler. Like, I can only imagine what being in closed confines with him for that era must have been like. I mean, yeah, I mean, it, whatever the straw was, it, it may have been a minor thing. Like, yeah, it's hard not to blame him. Yeah, I mean, I think Liam, too, was feeling at that time that he was also a songwriter. He was starting to develop as a songwriter. He had written some pretty good tunes for various late-period Oasis records. Yeah, Songbird was a great song, I thought. Yeah, Songbird. And, like, you know, like, Don't Believe the Truth. I mean, I feel like the songs on that record were, like, fairly evenly distributed among the different band members. Um, I think Noel maybe wrote half of that record, but then, you know, like, Liam wrote some songs. Jem Archer wrote some songs. And, and Liam would later say, like, by this era, he was kind of hoping that, that he and Noel would, would actually do songwriting together. Like he said he wanted Gallagher, Gallagher writing music together, like, you know, Lennon and McCartney style. I'm writing this song. Can you help me a little bit? It's almost like Shades of the, the George Harrison uh, Beatles uh, feud. Where it's just, you know, I'm here, I'm working on this. Would you would you give me the respect to come over and actually listen to it and and maybe elevate me to your level and and we can do this together. We're brothers. And um, I mean, maybe that's Liam just saying that after the fact, looking for 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 grievances with Noel, despite being sort of the most obvious offender. But uh, but Noel also touched on this later. He said, you know, Liam got cast in the role of this like performing monkey by the press, and I got cast as this man behind the curtain. And and maybe Liam wanted to be the Wizard of Oz instead of the monkey. Yeah, I mean, like Liam Gallagher is not as good of a songwriter as George Harrison. I think we can say that <laughs> right. pretty unequivocally. And that, and that really kind of comes uh, becomes obvious when Liam starts a new band called BDI with members basically like the leftover parts of Oasis. And um, they put out a record in 2011 called Different Gear Still Speeding. And 
it's essentially a, an attempt to just straight up replicate Oasis. Um, and it sounds a lot like Oasis. You obviously have the same singer, um, but the songs are just not as memorable. I mean, again, like it, like we were talking about in our Roger Waters, David Gilmore episode, like he would be kind of like the David Gilmore in a way in this dynamic where he, it's like, yeah, if you want just straight ahead rock, that sounds like Oasis, but doesn't really have any of the substance or like the memorable parts that made Oasis great. Then like, that's what BDI is. Um, I'd say too, like I interviewed Liam. The one time I interviewed Liam was when he was promoting that first BDI record. And I alluded to this earlier, but like, you know, Liam Gallagher has become a much cannier, uh, you know, interviewee, you know, as someone who can use the media to like, put himself out there and to get people on his side, you know, at that time he was still like pretty churlish in interviews and could be pretty standoffish. I remember I, I asked him 24 questions in 15 minutes. Wow. And like most of his answers were like two or three words. And this kind of became a joke. Like the answer that he gave, I swear to God more than once was like, I'd ask him about like Oasis. Are you going to play Oasis songs? And he would just say BDI music, mate. BDI music mate, BDI mate. Like he just said that, like that three or four word phrase over and over again. You can't um, call your album different gear still speeding. That's obviously an allusion to continuing on the same route and same path you had been. A, oh, that, I'm sorry. I'm sorry you had to deal with that. That's really annoying. So, and then you have Noel. He starts Noel Gallagher's High Flying Birds. And I remember, you know, they came out and like that self-titled debut, I think is actually like a pretty good record. But in a way, I felt like he had a similar issue in that like the songs were really good, but it also is kind of a boring record. Like it didn't have that edge that that the best Oasis records have. Like, I, like how did you feel about his solo album? For me, it's a voice thing too. Like his voice, I mean, he may even be technically considered a better singer because he doesn't have that like Johnny Rotten kind of snarl that Liam does. But you're right, it just bored me. He's not, he's not a front man, you know? I No. I mean, he's a great, Chasing Yesterday he, was great though. I like that. Well, like, you know, I think he's a B plus lead singer and he's like a solid A as a backing singer. Like, there's so many Oasis songs that I love that are just made even greater because of Noel's backing vocals. Um, I'll say too, like my favorite Oasis song of all time is the song Acquiesce, which is like a famous B-side where Liam sings the verses and Noel sings the chorus. And to me, that just makes that song the ultimate Oasis song because you can hear both of them. They're both, in a way, battling each other for attention in that song, and yet they're also perfectly complementing each other at the same time. Um, I mean, again, I think as a singer, Liam can stand on his own better than Noel can, but like as a songwriter, Liam can't even touch, <laughs> can't come close to touching what Noel can do musically. But, uh, you know, as we get into the 2010s, it seems like this battle between these two becomes more of like a Twitter battle than a musical battle. Like, wouldn't you say? Oh, yeah. I mean, Liam's Twitter skills are absolutely unmatched. I mean, he, he, he his, it, it's truly his calling. He's an artist when it comes to Twitter warfare. He's made just references that just are, are not of this world, I have to say. I mean, well, first of all, I mean, this one's easy, but he uh, dubbed Noel Gallagher's High Flying Birds, Noel Gallagher's High Flying Turds, which is 
Brilliant. That's <laughs> right. a, a classic line there. And he really just takes it from there. And he, speaking directly to the fans, you're right. He somehow has leveraged his his persona as sort of the unstable, crazy one who's, you know, let's face it, the reason why Oasis probably isn't together to somehow just pleading his case directly to fans and making himself seem more like the aggrieved party. Like he's the one who wants Oasis to get back together, but my my boring-ass brother wants to do his boring-ass records and he won't do it. Yeah, I mean, to me, that's the most interesting part of this feud as they've moved into middle age. Because, you know, the Twitter aspect of their battle is more of a one-sided battle. Like Noel, I don't think, is on Twitter. Normally, the way he manifests his own side is he'll do an interview and then those quotes will end up on Twitter and then Liam will react to it. Um, But Liam has really become like the great wit of these two. Uh, Like he's the one that uh, is, you know, he's on Twitter all the time. He's really funny. Like, yeah, calling Noel a potato. Like, I just think it's hilarious. You know, there's been so many things that he's done. And like you said, I think there's an aspect to him where, I mean, he's been pretty open about wanting Oasis to get back together. I think he's like done interviews where he's talked about that. He's talked about that on Twitter. There's been various instances uh, where he felt like, oh, this might have been a good time for Oasis, you know, to do a reunion. And I think clearly there's so many people out there. Like if you love these guys, you would love for the chance to see them play live together again. And it's almost a thing now like where Liam is on the fan side and Noel is the one standing in the way of, you know, this thing happening, uh, which, you know, if I look at it from Noel's perspective, I could see how maddening that would be because I'm sure he looks at it as, well, this guy did everything he could to derail the band when we were together. And I worked really hard to make us successful. Sometimes, you know, fighting against this guy who wanted, you know, to crash us into the side of a mountain. And now he's, you know, acting like he wants to to be nice again. It's like, well, why would I put myself in that position again? Um, but I think just due to the fact that Liam has been so funny lately and he's gotten so much better at giving interviews and being in the media and that he's taking the side that I think more people are sympathetic toward, in a way, I feel like he's like won this rivalry over Noel like in the last several years. Oh, yeah, especially after the the Manchester bombing in, in May 2017. I mean, Liam made it really awkward for Noel. He, he called Noel out for not showing up and being there and reuniting Oasis to, to help, you know, unify their hometown. I think he, he, Noel claimed he was out of the country. I think he was. But Liam's tweeting at him saying, you know, come on, play your songs for the sad kids, you, you miserable bastard or something like that. Like, it really, it puts Noel in a really awkward position, especially when, when these tragedies like that occur. I think he also tried to get Noel to, to reunite, to raise money for, for COVID, I think, too. He's using all these, you know, objectively good causes to try to put pressure on his brother to do this thing that he doesn't want to do. Yeah, I mean, I think at this point, it's one of those things, too, like where Noel, I'm sure there's a pride thing involved here, like where if he for some reason decided like, okay, I will reunite with my brother. Let's do an Oasis tour. I will go through the ordeal of being paid hundreds of millions of dollars <laughs> to, you know, do this very successful reunion tour, which I think, again, I think that tour would, would be huge. I think certainly internationally, but I think even in America, um, because I think Oasis has taken on a stature of like, they're that kind of band that you don't see much of anymore. 
in the same way that like Guns N' Roses, I think, was able to come back and still be very successful. I I think people look at Oasis as like, well, they don't make rock bands like that crazy anymore. You know, like if you're a dying breed. Exactly. And if you appreciate that kind of band, I think Oasis, even if you weren't a huge fan of theirs in the 90s, you know, they have enough of a catalog. They have enough hits that people know. And just the vibe that they portray, you know, there's something there, I think, that would that would draw a lot of people in. But I think for Noel, it just requires, you know, allowing so much water to go under the bridge for him to do that. You know, like we were talking earlier about how, you know, Liam is insinuating that like his daughter isn't his real daughter, you know, like things like that. It's like, how do you put that behind and not safe and not lose face? You know, um, I'm, I'm sure that's something that he must struggle with when he thinks about this. Oh yeah. The daughter stuff is something he cited again and again as being a main reason why he just can't forgive Liam. I guess Liam uh, texted Noel's daughter uh, because Noel's wife, called Liam fat on social media. And so Liam texts Noel's daughter saying, you better tell your stepmom to watch out. And of course, <laughs> which is, you know, and then she goes to, to her dad, Noel, and shows him this text from Uncle Liam. And Noel goes on, so I think he was on social media or Facebook. I forget where he went. And he said, you know, you threaten my kids now, dude? Like, no, like this is not, like if you weren't a rock star, we would file a police report on you. Like this is not, like you can't do this. And he's also said like, there's been weird voicemails and other things that, that he's left Noel's daughter. So yeah, I think that the daughter thing for him is particularly like a bridge too far for him. I mean, he, and he's even said like, you know, the only reason I would ever get Oasis back together at this point is to shut Liam up and get him away from my family. But I don't want to give in. I don't want to, I wouldn't give him the satisfaction. I, yeah. I just wonder like with some of this stuff and like, look, I think Liam don't text his daughter. That's not, can we just put the kids off to the side? Like just, Keep it one on one here. I, 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 I'm totally. I totally understand Noel being upset about that. That that's so crazy to me. I will say though that like I think there's an element here where Noel and Liam. Again, we've talked about this before, but like they they look at Oasis differently, and they and I think in a way, a lot of this arguing is about like how they want Oasis to be regarded and how to, how they want it to be remembered. Noel wants it to be about the songs. He's always talked about how. You know, this is like when Oasis was first becoming popular. Like he wanted Oasis albums to be looked at as timeless. He wanted them to be regarded the same way we look at great Beatles records or great Rolling Stones records. Like he cares about the lineage of rock history and he wants to be in that company. Whereas Liam, I think, also cares about that, but he also embraces the pro wrestling aspect of Oasis, (laughs) you know, like. The idea that Oasis is a band that lives large, that they cause controversy, that they make people upset from time to time, but that is a big part of their appeal. And I think even now with like a lot of his tweets or even like when he's texting Noel's daughter, I think there's an element of him being like, you know, the macho man, Randy Savage. You know, I think there's like a wrestling aspect to that where he's playing up the idea of him being like this flamboyant front man. And like, this is what you do. And like, especially now, because how many Liam Gallagher's are, are there in the world? Like there's not really that many anymore. So it's like, even there's even more of a need for someone like that. And I have to say like, I'm sympathetic to both sides uh, because I do think Oasis made great albums and they should be regarded as again, some of the best rock music of that era. But 
I also love the pro wrestling aspect of Oasis. And I, every time Liam picks a fight with Noel on Twitter, I eat it up to this day. Like I never get sick of it. So, you know, that I think is the kind of the crux of like what this rivalry is. There's a party that that wants them to be just happy enough to share a stage, but not actually happy. It's like Lindsey Buckingham and Stevie (laughs) Nicks. Like you don't want to see them really hug on stage. Like you want to see them stare each other down during the chain. Like, you know, it's just, yeah, that that is such a huge part of, of their allure and what I love about them too. And, Oh. Yeah, just yeah, just, yeah, just like the fighting, but like how uh, how exhausting it must be to be in the middle of that. And I get that, but also entertain me, rock stars, <laughs> and make each other miserable. That's what I want. We're gonna take a quick break to get a word from our sponsor before we get to more rivals. My name is Johnny B. Good, and I'm the host of the new podcast, Creating a Con: The Story of Bitcoin. Over this nine-part series, I'll explore the life and crimes of my best friend, Ray Trapani. I always wanted to be a criminal. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. You see, Ray has this unique ability to find loopholes and exploit them. They collected $30 million. There were headlines about it. His company, Centratech, was one of the hottest crypto startups in 2017. It was going to change the world, until it didn't came into my office, opened my email, and the subject heading was FBI request. It was only a matter of time before the truth came out. You can only fake it till you make it for so long before they find out that your Harvard degree is not so crimson. How could you sit there and do something that you know will objectively cause more harm in the world? Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I never thought I'd take my three young kids to Sicily to solve a century-old mystery, but that's what I'm doing in my new podcast, The Sicilian Inheritance. Join us as we travel thousands of miles on the beautiful and crazy island of Sicily, as I trace my roots back through a mystery for the ages and untangle clues within my family's origin story which has morphed like a game of telephone through the generations. Was our family matriarch killed in a land deal gone wrong? Or was it by the Sicilian mafia? A lover's quarrel? Or was she, as my father believed, a witch? Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. So, okay, so this is the part of the episode like where we talk about the pro sides of each side. And you know, let's start with Noel Gallagher, because in a way, I feel like it's the more straightforward case. And again, I mean, we see this dynamic in so many bands that there is the antagonist and the protagonist. And Noel, I guess, would be the protagonist here. It seems like he's, you know, he's the songwriter. 
He's the general of the band. I think it's fair to say that Liam in the rain, like if that would have been the band without Noel, they never would have made it out of Manchester. Um, And there's no question about that. And, you know, ultimately when we talk about Oasis, it's going to be because of Wonderwall, Live Forever, Don't Look Back in Anger, Champagne Supernova. Noel wrote all those songs and he's rightfully proud of, of that legacy. Oh yeah. I mean, wrote all the hits, incredible guitarist, creative visionary of the band. I'll take his solo work over Liam's any day. Uh, And I think it's worth it that he pushed the band to try to grow creatively. I mean, there's a quote that they gave when they released definitely maybe where Noel was saying like, well, all we wanted to do was release an album when we did that. Now we're looking forward to a lifetime of boredom. He said something like that. And it could have been easy. They wanted, they formed a band to get the hell out of Manchester and they did that. And yet, Noel still tried to push beyond and something like be here now. I mean, we joke about how sort of overblown it is, but like trying different things, I think is, is, was really laudable. And even when they didn't work, it's still just making the effort gave the, uh, their later era stuff in particular more depth. Yeah. And like, you know, I think all you have to do is ask yourself, like, what if Liam was your younger brother? <laughs> it's like, how well would you deal with that? I mean, just this irritant in your life, for, you know, from the time that you were a little kid. I think he was relatively patient with Liam for a really long time, and it just got to a point where he couldn't take it anymore. And, you know, again, like, if I put myself in this position, could I have lasted that long in a band with someone like Liam Gallagher? I don't know. I, I think I think Noel deserves some credit for that. Um, switching over to the pro-Liam side, you know, like I said earlier, as annoying as he can be as a brother, I'm sure to me, he embodies the spirit of Oasis, you know, like in his prime, he was young, dumb, strunk, and he was absolutely magnetic. You know, it's like, it's frankly what separates Oasis from every other Britpop band. And, you know, all due respect to Damon Alburn. Like, <laughs> I'm not, I'm not taking you show him no respect. it, but like Damon Alburn is not nearly as rock and roll as Liam Gallagher. He doesn't have the kind of swagger that Liam Gallagher has. He doesn't have the kind of presence that he has. And I think as a musician, as a singer, Liam is underrated. I think at his peak, he was one of the great rock singers of his time. And he was able to communicate, I think, more emotional depth than uh, he's given credit for. I mean, go back to definitely maybe and listen to the song Slide Away, his vocal Mm -hmm. on the chorus of that song incredibly resonant and, and emotional and uh and i think it just hits harder because it comes from the guy who's singing about cigarettes and alcohol and singing supersonic like he can be that but he can also show you a more tender side uh that you maybe wouldn't expect so um as a front man i put him really high on my own list of, of favorite front man and as much as like the rain the old Liam Gallagher man wouldn't have made it without bringing in Noel Gallagher and becoming Oasis. I think a band where Noel Gallagher was the front man or they had some other guy singing lead, they wouldn't have hit the heights that Oasis did. You know, you needed that guy, that singer uh, for it to be Oasis. Oh yeah. I mean, he could sell some truly terrible Oasis lyrics too. I mean, some might say, the sink is oh, full man. of fishes because she's got dirty dishes on the brain and my dog's been itching, itching in the kitchen once again. I mean, awful. awful. It's only a certain kind of guy can sell that line. And Liam can. He makes it sound badass right. when he sings it. I mean, it sounds he, awesome. He's like the personification of the band and everything it represents. You know, I mean, 
like you said, I mean, Noel was happy just being a roadie. You know, he, he, even though the fact that Liam couldn't write a song and really didn't have much musical talent to speak of, he, he just wanted it so badly that just by sheer force of will and attitude, he sort of willed this band into existence. So, yeah, I agree. He, he is the, the spirit of Oasis. So bringing these guys together, and, you know, we've hit upon this time and again in this episode, but I think it's clear that they're worth more than the sum of the parts, you know, that what made Oasis work and what drew fans like me into the band was the tension between these guys, the the very real tension of them arguing all the time and also the tension of what they represented, the idea of, of, of chaos and order pushing up against each other constantly. And if it were just one, the band would have either spun out of control or they would have been a boring Britpop band that we don't care about anymore. But because they had both, that is what makes Oasis special. And it's what, for me, brings me back to their great records time and again. Um, and I think they do hold up. And even if these guys never play together again, I think what they created together will stand up as like the defining British rock of the 90s. Sometimes it feels like they're playing the long con and this feud is just like a way to hook us all in for some you know, inevitable reunion tour bonanza, which, you know, I'll allow. Do, do you think that, that on some level they actually really like each other? You know, I think the animosity is genuine, um, but it's hard for me to believe that they won't eventually reunite. You know, like I saw Liam Gallagher play a solo gig a couple years ago at First Avenue in Minneapolis, and it was a great show, but I couldn't help but think that across the street is the Target Center, <laughs> which is like a 20,000-seat <laughs> arena which I'm pretty sure Oasis played there back in the past. And it was just like, Oasis needs to be in this building. You know, Liam Gallagher needs to be in this building. And I'm sure like Liam in his own mind thinks that. Noel might have a harder time uh, coming around to that. But you can't run away from your destiny. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like this is their destiny. And uh, as difficult as it is, you know, the burden of being an Oasis, you know, maybe they can suffer through the inevitable, you know, millions and millions of dollars that they will be paid to get together, you know, when that finally happens. Noel, Liam, get back together, like each other, but not too much. Yes. And and don't look back in anger, Liam and Noel. (laughs) You know, because maybe you're going to be the only ones who save each other. Ooh, very nice. I think that's fair to say. That's... You know, like again, like that line stands out. That's why that stands out. It's a powerful line, and I think it applies to these guys. So make it happen, guys. Steven, you and I are going to live forever. Yes, we're going to live forever, man. We're going to definitely live until next week when we do another episode of Rivals. So please tune in at that time for our next episode, and uh, we'll talk at you guys next week. And that's the end. Rivals is a production of iHeartRadio. The executive producers are Sean Titone and Noel Brown. The supervising producers are Taylor Shacoin and Tristan McNeil. I'm Jordan Runtog. And I'm Stephen Hyden. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Johnny B. Good, the host of the podcast Creating a Con, the story of BitCon. This podcast dives deep into the story of Ray Trapani and his company, Centratech. I'll explore how three 20-somethings built a company out of lies, deceit, and greed. 
I've been saying since a very young age that I was going to be a millionaire. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tail. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge the season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Listen to the highly anticipated 100th episode of Tank and Jay Valentine's R&B Money Podcast with artist Chris Brown. Even working with you from Carrie Hilson, Adonis. Mm-hmm. Back in the day, I was 15, 14 doing that album. So like I said, I was in school like, yeah. okay, this is how you do it. This is how you make a song. There's a verse, a pre-chorus, and then a hook. I didn't know none of that. You learned I, that over a summer, bro. That's and what it felt like. That's what it felt like. Listen to R&B Money on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts.